So, hello everyone. I am ED's content editor, Matt Mace, and I'd like to welcome you all to a rather interesting and rather special edition of our Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Uh, I'm sure many of our avid listeners are aware that this week is all about the ED Live conference, and what better way to celebrate it than with a podcast debate live from the keynote theatre. Um, in that sense, I'm not quite sure how well this is going to um, translate for those listening at home, but I'm hoping that it will come fine because basically what we're going to do is we're just going to have a nice broad level debate around basically business leadership in the post-CSR era. We do obviously have a live audience in front of us, so do address your answers to them. And we will hopefully have time for questions towards the end as well. So if you want to be on this podcast, basically ask a question. Um, Make, wait for the mic and make sure to introduce yourself as well and you'll, you'll go down in ED infamy for all the right reasons <laughs> I may add. Um, so yep, we're bringing you this show live from the NEC in Birmingham and today's episode is also brought to you in association with Mighty Energy as the way that companies use and interact with energy utilities and assets all change. Mighty Energy is uniquely positioned to help your business champion technology and innovation to deliver low-cost, low-carbon solutions. And for more information, you can visit mightyenergy.com. And we do have a representative from Mighty on the panel today. And rather than me kind of doing these really long-winded introductions to all our panel members, <coughs> that doesn't sound good on a podcast. So I'm going to get you all to introduce yourself. So if I start to my left. Hello, I'm Simon Graham. I'm the head of innovation at the Corsi Alexander DCA, which is a sustainability innovation consultancy based in London. And we can continue to go around. Thank you. I'm Marcela Navarro. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Project X, a systems accelerator that aims to shift $1.3 trillion of unsustainable sourcing to sustainable sourcing by 2030. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Mike Hansen. I'm head of sustainable business for Baxter Story. We are a uh, food service company to business and industry, uh, so we provide catering for clients such as PwC, uh, RBS, and so on. Yep. Hi there. I'm Jamie Hall, and I'm operations director for Mighty Energy. So we're a, an energy and sustainability services company operating in uh, B2B. So we help companies to uh, ultimately reduce energy, to buy it, uh, but also to uh, to make them more sustainable as well. So it's quite a, a broad spectrum of businesses we've got. This is the Avengers Assemble in that sense. We've got people that are uniquely positioned to be able to talk about certain aspects of sustainability in CSR because it is such a broad area. And that's where the inspiration for this episode and this topic comes from, this post-CSR era. I, I was reading up on a news article and it was all about the Canadian government were essentially auditing businesses on how they had embedded CSR and sustainability into their business and they were across a five-tier approach of finding that CSR was no longer starting to be viewed as this isolated function within a business. It was now being um, changed. The language that was being used was now all about social value and purpose. And what that um, report from the Canadian government found is that essentially we're entering this area where um, CSR isn't uh, a function. It isn't really a job remit. It will essentially become a business value that's delivered across the entire business. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people in the audience or across the exhibition today that have successfully begun to make that transition. A few others perhaps have run a few tips along the way and that's where you guys come in. I want to get your thoughts on where sustainability as a job function is headed. But instead of just jumping straight in there, I think it'd be good to set a bit of context and see how far we've come over the last 10 years, um, 
with the ratification of the Paris Agreement, the Millennium Goals transferring into the Sustainable Development Goals, and this widespread awareness around climate emergencies and plastic pollution, we're, we're at a, a different era already in terms of awareness. How a business responds to that is quite interesting. So I'd be interested to get the panelists' um, thoughts on how sustainability or CSR has evolved for them over the last decade. What's different now than what it was perhaps 10 years ago? So I don't know um, if Marcella, you'd like to start with that one? Okay, so thank you for that one. I, I believe that uh, coming from the corporate world now in the, let's call it hybrid, big corporate world in the middle, I, I, I have to say when I came from very proudly Colombian, then moving to the US, then moving to the UK, I was a bit surprised about the role of CSR and it was a more philanthropic role. Building benches, painting walls, uh, doing very philanthropic role uh, from a corporate perspective. How have I seen this moving? Is a moving not yet at the pace I would like to see it um, from my perspective, but it's moving from a philanthropic role to a pragmatic role and some, in some occasions in some corporates as a strategic role. How CSR can become a force for change how CSR can become a demonstrator of what can be achieved. The other point I have seen is moving from a very risk-adverse group to a market-maker group. Not yet there, in my opinion, and I, I would summarize it, there's still a lot of untapped opportunity in CSR to create the change that is needed for transformation. And just to build on that then, so it, it sounds like a lot of positive momentum, but more needed, but I mean, 10, 15 years ago, did you ever think you'd be kind of sitting here now and having been able to have the discussions we are with a much broader audience around sustainability? Or did you think it'd be much more confined to the conversations you'd be able to have? I, I, I believe, look, I'm in pragmatic. I, I believe we haven't done enough in CSR. And I believe CSR is not yet as empowered as they should be in an organization. I, I still believe that sustainability or CSR is still an add-on with the respect of my colleagues in CSR and should move into strategic shaping role. So do I see the role of sustainability changing and shaping? Absolutely I do. I don't think we are yet there. I think there are some good examples, but I think we have not, as I said, on top the massive potential sustainability or CSR bring to what is required as a core business. <coughs> Have I answered your question? Yeah, no, you have indeed. And I'd like to obviously extend that to the rest of the panel. So um, perhaps Mike? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, we um, probably my, our first foray into sustainability per se started very much around the environment. So 2006, we started our environmental agenda. Um, I, I'm, I'm a caterer by trade. So I was originally, very many years ago, a chef. And I've been an ops manager and what have you, looking after catering contracts. So I sort of, I became involved with sustainability because of the, the need uh, from my colleague ops managers um, needing information because their clients were asking them for information around sustainability. I looked after predominantly government contracts so I seemed to know a bit more than they did so people were starting to come to me. So in 2006 our CEO came and said look Mike we wanted to um, pick this up and run with it. So I did do and I ran it part-time um, with, along with my operational role until end of 2011 when I handed over my last contract and became full-time. Um, so to really sort of demonstrate where we've come from since the end of 2011 when I was, I actually went full-time having previously been part-time and there's now actually three of us, uh, in fact there's four of us in 
within WSH, which is the wider family for Baxter Story, full time on sustainability, um, which is quite an incredible change since 2011. Um, and I really noticed that um, things have really started to sort of gain gravitas when I'm, I'm actually aware of events and things that are happening in the business around sustainability that I'm not aware of, that I haven't been involved with. So actually the ops teams and the other people are actually talking about sustainability and they haven't felt they needed to include me, which is fine. That could be from an ego point of view, thinking <laughs> they should have let me know. But actually, that's a great sign. That is a really, really good sign. So, no, I mean, I'm incredibly um, excited about the future. Absolutely, I think that it's going from strength to strength. I do think that we have gone an incredible journey. And I think particularly, and there's over a period of time, there are a series of catalysts that really sort of give sustainability a kick up the arse, if you like. And that's, for example, in October 2017, when Blue Planet first aired, and it's quite interesting actually, because someone said this morning, that out of 17 hours of television of Blue Planet, 14 minutes talked about plastic pollution. But everybody thinks about Pla Blue Planet 2 as being around plastic pollution. But that really was an amazing stake in the ground, an incredible driver for change. And I think there's so much that's come out of that. And then obviously there's the, the, the uh, you know, power to climate change and so on, all these different things that have happened. I think sustainability is really becoming a, a major, major aspect for business. But and, if, I, if yeah. I can interrupt you, which is, you work with us when I was on the corporate side. Yeah. And one element that I thought, and, and we are not in agreement to say that actually, I have not received any fees on this or anything. <laughs> But uh, when Baxter Story worked with us as a supplier, one of the key elements I personally saw as a driver for change was bringing innovation as part of sustainability. That was new, and it was not easy to see. So I think uh, commending the work that you have done you is looking how you're innovating in your business <laughs> model <laughs> to allow sustainability to be practical, to be actionable, to be real, yeah. which I think is something that we on the corporate side at that time valued very much. The, the opportunity to get action through innovation to be sustainable. Yeah. So, yeah. Great. Thank you. Uh, I think that's probably a good time to bring uh, Simon into this chat, you're, <laughs> you're, as your head um, title suggests, head of innovation. innovation. So, this is clearly prime for you to, to wow the rest of the panel. <laughs> well, well, for me, I, I'm going to take you slightly back than a decade because 2006 was, to me, one of the last points when there was an opportunity for us to do things which were different. So. Um, I'm old enough to remember before Blue Planet 2. Um, I'm actually old enough to remember the last revolutionary thing, which, which was The Inconvenient Truth with Al Gore, which about that period of time, 2005-06 it was. Uh, and that was the moment where a lot of corporates engaged. Um, I also remember the time before that, when there was a lot of engagement. If you remember, we had and, and the Montreal Protocol and lots of other things, and we've had fits and starts. Um, the difference of now that I think, and I think your point about where we are post-CSR, is that in the past the corporate world wasn't quite there with the people world. And there was a focus on philanthropy, there was a focus on the do-gooders. Um, yes, we were starting to integrate a bit in what we call corporate social responsibility, but it were kind of programs within an idea of, um, of, of, a, of a paternalistic model we would go and support the football team. Now CSR, so we'll support a number of football teams to reach out to young people. 
what I'm seeing a difference is in between, of course, we had that moment where we started integrating into operations, where we started to talk about how do we make our businesses more sustainable. The kickoff now is, as you rightly say, we can drive innovation. We can start looking at business as an enabler. And I think previously it ended up being quite reactive. So when, when, you were, when business was hit by uh, the landfill tax, it responded well, but reactively. Now I'm feeling a very different energy. I'm feeling that there's an opportunity to engage in the whole circular debate. Is this enough implementation or progress in implementation towards SDGs? It's not enough. No. So are we still discussing or debating too much about it? What is your view? Or are we starting to execute what we need to execute and demonstrate? Because there's, there's a lot of talk still, from my perspective, not enough execution. The, the demonstration phase, to some extent, we're still stuck in. The idea you have to do a pilot here, or a prototype here, or a little test here. And, and, the, and one of the challenges, I would say, as sustainability professionals, we're so used to taking it a bit cautiously. We need to be less cautious. We need to say, actually, there's a, there's a world out there which wants the changes to happen more quickly. And if we're prepared to be brave, I think now we could be braver than we ever could before. Jamie, I'd like to bring you into this conversation, especially when we've just touched on being less cautious and testing the water. Mighty Energy yeah. probably had the conversations they're having with businesses now compared That's to right. 10 years ago is probably much different. Um, is it still a case of businesses are still cautious around how they approach sustainability through an energy lens? Or uh, I think from our perspective, I think there's, there's a number of drivers, obviously, for businesses now, depending on which sector you, you work within and you know, whether they're trying to attract and retain talent, whether they're, you know, they're trying to bid for you know, uh, government frameworks, for example, as you were saying earlier, um, whether or not you know, they, they, their suppliers are pushing them to be more sustainable. I feel, I feel like businesses are getting that pressure from lots of different places at the moment. And obviously, that's being driven by the fact that there's a lot more awareness. Um, and you know, to my kind of reflection on where it's come from, you know, there was CSR or environmental or energy. I think it, you know, it started as a, with a compliance focus. So we need to tick that box. We need to get that report done. We need to do, and it was almost that kind of greenwashing effect where that's where, you know, that's where it was all about. And I think as it's gained momentum, as awareness is increased, you've then seen a, a kind of broadening of sustainability. And I think that's one of the problems actually is the fact that it's become very broad and it's, you know, we get asked all the time, what is sustainability? And I think it depends who you are and what organization you work with. But there's definitely been a convergence from that kind of compliance focus from energy and environmental into CSR. And that's where it started to ground a bit more in terms of a definition, which was broader. But now it's, it's gone again, I feel like. And it's now looking at, you know, social value, as you were saying, it's now looking at health and well-being. So there's this kind of uh, all-encompassing view now of sustainability and you know just to give you a, a flavor we work with hundreds of customers um, and only a handful a handful of rather have, have actually managed to write a deep and meaningful sustainability strategy and embed that into their organization successfully because it is very very difficult to do that there are lots and lots of reasons why you know, whether it's data, whether it's technology, whether it's um, senior support, whether it's, you know, there's lots and lots of reasons why it's very difficult to actually get a strategy which has got meaningful targets, which is ambitious, uh, and then to fully embed that into the organization and for people to take it seriously. Because, 
um, as we were saying earlier, you know, you know it's really successful when it's habitual and people are just doing it, yeah. um, as, you were, as you were just saying. So that's yeah. kind of my reflection on it. Yeah. It yeah, does yeah. completely. And, yeah. and so what I want to do is kind of create a hypothetical company that, that would essentially thrive in this post-CSR era. So I'd like to get from you all what the, what the kind of essentials that this company needs to be considered uh, a leader in terms of sustainability to the point where it's not departmentalized, it's not in silo. So I suppose I've answered a little bit of the question there. It has to be embedded. How does a business go from having uh, a sustainability department which can be quite you know, um, resource light, there can be only a couple of people in it, time is obviously of the essence for them. How do they then start embedding that holistically across every kind of department to the point where you know, Mike, like you said, you can actually be left out of some conversations because yeah. the expertise are there. What, how does that journey even start? I think uh, Mike, perhaps that's one for you to take on. I think the, I think the most important part is engaged leadership. Um, it, I mean, uh, in whichever corporate structure you want to look at, it comes from the top. It's got to come from the top. Now, the actual, the, the creation of the innovation may not come from the top, but the buy-in has to be there. So, um, for example, I, am, um, I, I, I hope I'm looking to drive sustainability through Access Story. Uh, I'm absolutely not at the top, but I do have the people I report to are engaged in what I do. And I'm exceptionally lucky in that my direct line manager, it's like pushing against an open door. And that makes, which is why I'm still there after so many years, because actually it means I can, I can achieve stuff I want to achieve. Um, I get engagement, I get buy-in, and when you get that authority from the top, that's what really starts to create that change and creates the, the, the spirit of entrepreneurialism and, and fluidity that we have as a business helps to cascade that through the business. Okay, great stuff. Um, Marcella, I suppose the same kind of question to you. What's, you know, if a, if a business wants to get its house in order in terms to be considered a leader, especially what we said around how you can no longer just view it for your own four walls, there has to be that external engagement, you know, what, what processes have to be in place? Well, I probably would start with an adjective is consistency, right? So if we expect to be a leader, we need to act as one. And uh, I believe that companies, uh, we are addressing global challenges. So I think we need to start moving or this ideal company to be sustainable in a way that is relevant over time to their people, community, suppliers and customers need to start acting consistently. How should they be engaging with other heads of departments in that sense? I think that sustainability is so exciting right now is because those areas that used to be exciting and innovative and fun increasingly are now within that space called sustainability. So when you're engaging with, in previously, you had to apologize before you started the conversation. And now you don't need to. So when you are, when you're in the, yeah, fundamentally sustainability is cool. All the, all the exciting companies are doing sustainable stuff. All the exciting people want to be involved in sustainable innovation. And that transforms the conversation. So. You don't have to be embarrassed anymore. So as a head of department, looking look at other heads, you don't have to shy away. You're probably the one the chief exec is most pleased to see when you enter the room. But I, look, I completely agree with you. There's so much space to innovate within the silos of functions or within the silos between the company and the community. Yeah. And very few engines within the organization are picking up that. Mm. So I think now, they're in, a, in a very positive way, let's call it sustainability or CSR, have the opportunity to pick up on this demonstration that is so needed. 
have the opportunity to de-risk the, even the testing in, in their own premises or the testing of key solutions within their own cooperation. And this has, I believe strongly that now CSR has the opportunity to bring these in-house, mm. walk the talk, learn from this and take it out. It has been more as an external element, but we are not using the money or the sources, the resources from sustainability to test internally or to test in our value chain enough. So we can de-risk the process enough. We cannot expect sustainability to be risky and we shouldn't do it if it is. It cannot be risky. It has to respond to the adequacy of risk and compliance of the company, definitely. Yeah, I think um, if you think about, obviously we were talking earlier about how broad sustainability can be and, and in any organization it's going to span, you know, at least the group central functions, HR for the people angle, group property, uh, potentially fleet, you know, and, and to try and break down those silos is, is very difficult. So whether, you, whether it's through working groups or through a steering committee, you need to engage and empower those people to be able to come to the table with their own ideas and to make it relevant to them. Um, and if you can do that successfully, then, you know, you, you're on to, uh, you know, you could, you, you know, you're going to get more success than if people are disenfranchised or not, not speak. And, you know, if, if people feel like it's done to them, it's going to be a lot harder to, to move it forward. And so, and so what are the, the, I suppose, the softer skills then of a, of a sustainability professional now, um, perhaps, to, and how they differ to perhaps 10 years ago? There was, there was always these kind of language barriers and there was always this conception that perhaps people in finance would get you know, kind of misty-eyed when um, sustainability jargon would come up. And it was all a case of, can you, can you show sustainability as an opportunity, as a financial saver, which, yeah. you know, the leading companies have, have proved. You look at um, Unilever, Ikea, the, the money they're now generating through their, well, Ikea through their sustainable living, um, Unilever through their sustainable living plan, um, it's, it's there for all to see. Um, and even on an energy perspective now, the, the use of renewables and energy storage is now seen as a, as a monetary aspect. So I feel like that's quite simple to do, provided the, everything's embedded. But in terms of a language and how you approach the board or how you approach procurement, is, are there still the same barriers that you had perhaps five, ten years ago? Or, or are they now more in tune with it, do you think? Yeah. If I can start on that, I think that... Um the, we, we've got more, uh, as a sustainability fraternity, if you like, we've got more tools available to us to help us communicate. And the absolute key um, to what we do is communication. It's about telling stories. Stories sell. And we need to make sure that those stories are aligned, are framed in line with the values of the individual that you're talking to. As you're absolutely right in what you say, Matt, you talk to the finance team, and you talk about sustainability to the finance team, but you need to use a language that's around impact on the bottom line, either up or down, or the impact it will have, or the opportunities that are presented. Whether you're talking to marketing or to HR, if you're talking to HR and, and the, the personnel team, or the people team around sustainability, it's around opportunities around uh, hanging on to the right people that you want to keep. Because the, the Certainly the millennials and the younger people want to work for companies that are really focused on areas of sustainability. So actually it's about framing your argument, framing your, your question. So a lot of what we do, apart from being innovative in terms of trying to drive innovation in terms of sustainability and energy and waste and water and all that good stuff, but it's also about the soft skills of talking to people and communication. 
Just saying, I, I cannot agree more with that, but I think if, if we extrapolate this into what we are focusing on, that is system change, I still believe that the language is a huge gap. The pace, the priority, the purpose, the language between different companies or different entities in the supply chain or in an industry are fundamentally difficult to address. And that's why the 17 SDG is so important. Mm. How can we address the gap of language to communicate, create a common purpose, so we can achieve individually what we need to achieve? So I, I believe we still have a way to go. I believe that sustainability also has a role to educate, not just translate. So it's a both ways. So yes, we need to empathize with our stakeholders, but I, I would actually, what we are doing is focusing on two main indicators, that is time and money. Everybody understands that. If you talk about the individual entities within a company, within the supply chain or an industry, every player understands time and money. So I, my suggestion or what we're doing or working towards doing is reconciling into key indicators that are associated with the bottom line, with the relevance of the company as a whole, that will be, of course, supported by environmental, policy, ethical, uh, social acceptability perspective. But it has to come into a simple two indicators from our perspective. Are you seeing this need for companies to interact outside of their own four walls, um, create new partnerships across, across kind of different sectors? And, and in turn, is that kind of introducing you to new people where their understanding of sustainability might be defined by where they operate. So a built environment company might only concentrate on resource efficiency or stuff like that. Whereas, um, you know, uh, a company like Bachelor Story, food waste becomes an issue. How do you kind of join up the synergies as, as collaboration becomes a bigger aspect? I see a, uh, a big role for partnerships. You know, that might lead to different business models. That might lead to, you know, um, you know, just different ways of approaching and tackling the situation because there's obviously a lot of work to do, as you say, and it's, it's difficult to do it on your own. It's, you know, nobody's just going to be able to do crack this on their own, and I think that's a really key thing. Um, on the partnership side of the thing, I, I, we've, we've personally uh, tried to partner with uh, academia a lot more. So we've, we've reached out to a number of different universities. We've been um, we've got a couple of knowledge transfer partnerships working and funded by Innovate UK. So that's all about linking academia and the world of business to try and tackle a problem because, you know, you want the solution to be data-driven, science-based. Uh, science um, and, you know, we've seen some really great success with that. So as a business model, if you can, if you can, if you can apply that to a particular problem and get some of the brightest people you know, in the world or in the country to, to support your business objective, then, you know, why wouldn't you do that? I think it's a great model and more people should do it. And Simon, sticking with, uh, I suppose, not having the conversations just internally with different department heads, but also with just different businesses, not necessarily within the same sector, but as sustainability becomes much more crucial, much more business critical, they will no doubt reach out to companies that before they perhaps didn't have any synergies with. You look at perhaps um, energy companies and now car manufacturers. There's a, there's a real synergy there. So how, you know, what kind of skills does the same professional need there to be able to you know, find a common ground with a company in perhaps a completely different sector? Well, to some extent, that's why post-CSR is so exciting. Because once you're outside the, the CSR department where... To some extent, you're having to, yeah, you've moved from operations to strategy, well done, congratulations, but you're still stuck in a little box as the one person or small group people who are delivering CSR strategy. If you can move out of that model and start to become the reason why business exists, which actually, to some extent, sustainability should be, 
because business has underneath it its basic reason isn't to make money it's to provide social purpose we're in an era now where consumers and citizens as a whole are so engaged they can ask a business a question at the tap of a, of a button on their on their iPhone or their or their smartphone now um, and businesses can't really hide from that they have to provide some sort of answer greenwashing is perhaps still a bit too prominent but in terms of radical transparency how um, how does this business now present itself and I'm, I'm talking not just in terms of its marketing but also in reporting you know does it does integrated reporting become a thing where financials are listed alongside sustainability performance? Is it a case that anything that is of business value has some sort of sustainability indicator in it? How, how, does that, how do we see that make up in the future? I'm, I'm opening it up to the panel for whoever wants to uh, answer that. I personally believe that, again, seeing how difficult it is for a corporate to shift from a source of supply, as I have said in the past, uh, and not... not not talking bad about IBM, but nobody gets fired from procuring from IBM, right? So when you dare to innovate in the model, when you dare to innovate, bringing innovation or sustainability into your procurement base, it's risky. It's the neck of the procurement people on the line. So it's not that easy, and let's acknowledge that. So for me, it's more about the element of transparency is also for them to procure. How we can add independency transparency and objectivity for procurement to be able to confidently shift to a sustainable alternative. We cannot expect procurement to assume more risks. We cannot expect procurement to pay more for sustainable sources. How we help procurement and the business to reduce the risk of sustainable alternative shift. That's one of the elements I would focus on. The other element I would focus on again is demonstration. Um, the world, in a world of circles, you don't think a square makes sense. No. So how we can help accelerate demonstration, compress time to demonstration, so there is a reduced fear factor of scaling. So I would focus on adoption through demonstration, but respecting the risk that companies go through. It's not easy to shift. From a corporate perspective, let's just unlock that appreciation of risk and respect that. Okay, great. Uh, has anyone got any kind of follow-ups on that, the, 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 the radicalness of the transparency around it? For, for me, the critical thing about transparency is it, on its own, it's hugely risky. But you ha once you've got a transparency, you have to allow for uh, people to be accountable. But not just accountable, then you've got to give them the, the tools to be able to manage that accountability. You've got to give them the responsibility to deal with the tools and the, the ability to actually action using proper resources. And then when it goes wrong, you've got to give them the getaway to allow them to fail. And those are all quite difficult things for any organization. Unless, and this is where I put my innovation hat, unless you're used to innovating, unless you're used to the scary thing called research, not, you know, people get confused between R&D and think it's one thing. The research part is highly risky. The development part is when you take that, knowing that it's going to get somewhere. But the research part, you're allowed to fail. In fact, it's the place where you should fail. It's the place where you should experiment with things that aren't necessarily going to go well. And if you are prepared to be transparent there, that's the place you can take the risks. But you know what I think is interesting, Simon, is that is where does transparency starts and end? Right? So if you're talking about transparency of the performance of the innovation, then you add transparency on the environmental performance. Then you add transparency into the ethical. Then you add transparency into the social acceptability, the policy. Where do you stop? 
So in a way, it's a let's understand what transparency means mm -hmm. to de-risk the adoption at scale. Yes. That, that's probably what I think. The, it's increasing the definition of transparency. And it comes with obligations and responsibilities mm -hmm. and, and opportunities. And do, we, do we think businesses should be allowed to share their failings in a place where they're not open up to, I suppose, not ridicule, but... Um, uh, you know, business itself is quite risk adverse and, and any kind of trials, I, I've seen a few in, in my role at Content Editor where we'll be covering a story about a big corporate that's tried in a certain aspect around sustainability and then you don't really hear anything about it. They've done yeah. a couple of pilots, um, they've done a couple of trials and evidently the story is it hasn't worked but they, they don't physically come out and say actually here's what didn't work and why. Do, do we need to get to an environment where failure isn't failure, it's just here's... Here's some learnings from that, which we can take to a successful agenda. Uh, yeah. Jamie, perhaps? Yeah, I think um, you've got to have that feedback loop and you need to be able to fail fast and learn and understand why you failed. And if you can really understand why you failed, then you can learn from it and you can evolve quicker. That's, you know, that's evolution of nature. You know, that's what it's all about. And I think you need to have the right um, you need to have the right culture in an organization and you need to have the right kind of um, the right systems to be, to be able to enable to, uh, to enable that sorry so you know if you've got the good system uh, and the right culture then people do feel like they can go and experiment they can try things they can innovate uh, and that's often where you get the best results so you know businesses definitely need to do more of it. And, then, and Mike, you were on the Circular Economy Theatre earlier and you were talking about the intricacies between packaging and food waste. There's such a, a natural balance there. And I imagine there's, there's similar kind of um, trade-offs across the whole sustainability spectrum. How can you know, businesses be radically transparent whilst kind of ushering in this new innovation um, and just be able to say it, it, it didn't work on this occasion, but we can, we can step forward anyway? I think it's a... It's a it's a fundamental problem, or the, the structure of the way, the way the, the corporate world works in terms of competition. We're all terrified of actually admitting failure. Um, you know, there's, there's an old adage that if you, if you don't, success, if you don't um, fail regularly, you're not trying hard enough. But actually, we, need, we should really be more open. And that's where I do, I do honestly, I'm not just saying this because we're on this stage now, but forums such as this, forums such as ED, are absolutely vital. Because we can, we do share, we do talk about it. We don't, you wouldn't, from a corporate perspective, you wouldn't tweet about it, you wouldn't announce it on your website that we did this and it failed because of the way you would perceive that that would look to your customers, your potential customers and your competitors. But actually, as everybody said, it's absolutely vital that we share that information for, if not for you as an individual, for the greater good. Because if, if back to the story make a mistake, then Marcella can improve, and you can improve, and we can all improve, because actually, or me standing up there earlier talking about values and frames, somebody hopefully maybe went away and thought, oh, actually, that's quite a good idea. I'm gonna write that down and I'll use it. So actually, for the greater good, it absolutely benefits everybody. Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good point. And, and thank you for the kind words about the forum as well. I didn't even have to pay him to, to say that, which is good. And yeah, this is a forum, so I'm, I'm a bit worried that there is about 10 minutes left. So um, we do have an audience in front of us. So if there are any questions right now, we do have time to facilitate them. If not, I do have a couple of um, quite, quite big questions I'm proud of to finish on. But um, if there is any questions, please do let me know. Um, we'll try and get a microphone 
over to the um, the guy at the back. Can you just make sure that you um, introduce yourself and your company you're from? You're now officially on the podcast, so so <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's William Iser from Domino Printing. Um, my question is sort of around. Uh, you're obviously in organisations now which are quite uh, advanced in sustainability. How have you gone from the discussion around compliance and risk to where you are now? There must have been a transition point where you decided to talk about values and philanthropy and things like that. Uh, okay, so let me try to, to address in a, in a... I'm Latin, so I use a lot of adjecti adjectives, so let me try to be succinct in here. I, I believe that a, a way to address that is embedding the process of adoption of sustainable alternatives with processes and tools the company already uses. One of our projects is with Cummins, that is a power engines company, right? One of their key uh, 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 objectives was to uh, address their environmental targets, their innovation targets, inclusion of underrepresented supplier targets, and of course cost targets. One of the key things for them is using Six Sigma. So they understand that a Six Sigma process is robust enough to help them to go through the process of understanding the problem like the Spice Girl again really, really well, to make sure that they are hearing the voice of the customer, that they are prioritizing, that they identify the key areas of problem. So that's one way to do it. Embedding the process of transformation in existing methodologies that are respected by the company as a whole. The other element is adoption is different to ideation. And I was speaking earlier about it. Ideation is more entrepreneurial, new ideas that will remain on the shelf. When we talk about adoption, we need to look at the systems that the company has in place from a CSR perspective, from a business perspective, from a compliance perspective, from a finance perspective, operations perspective, and bring all these conversations together and bring these stakeholders together to link these voices towards adoption. So two things, existing models and shifting the model from ideation to adoption is something that we have seen working already. Does anyone else have any follow-up yeah. to that? The, the comment about compliance, clearly, you know, legislation, everything, we have to do these things, or we have to do these things because this is what our, our clients expect, this is what they're asking from us, but actually moving to the model of selling opportunity. This is how good it could be. This is how good we are now, and this is where we can take it. And if we do this, 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 and this, this is how good it will be, and this is what it means for us. This is what, these are the doors that it will potentially open for us as a business, and it's that transition period. So it's not about just, you know, doing, you know, we're, I think sustainability has moved on generally, certainly within, within Baxter Story, to say, this is not just, we do it because we have to, we do this because it gives us a great opportunity for all the great reasons we know around doing the right thing, you know, sustainability, opportunity, commercial opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. But this is where it can be and this is where we're going. Can I just add something quickly on that? But it's also about how, how bad this could be if you don't do anything. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. think it's also not only the opportunity that we think, oh, the CSR people are the, the dreamers. <laughs> yes, let's dream and let's do some change. But if this doesn't happen, what happened? What is the risk of saying no to a sustainable alternative and then your competition picks it up? So what's the risk of saying no and not taking action? in addition, as what you said, yeah. the opportunity benefit of that. Yeah, I think um, just on that point, exactly, one of, the, one of the really effective things that we've helped organizations to do is to benchmark them. You know, you can do that against sustainability pioneers generally, but to, to make it even more relevant to them, you can benchmark them against 
other organizations in their own industry. You know, and then ultimately it becomes competitive. You know, and if you want to survive as an organization, you need to be doing the types of things that these businesses are doing. And that can make it really, really relevant to the people inside your own organization as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we had another hand over here, yes. So we'll just wait for the mic to come around. Yeah, hi. Uh, Stephen Edwards from uh, Catalyst Housing Association. Um, thanks for a really uh, interesting conversation that has been really uh, stimulating. Um, I wanted to pick up a couple of points and just make a couple of comments. Um, I think it was Mike who said about that importance of getting leadership buy-in and getting them to, to drive any sustainability initiatives through an organisation. And, and I kind of agree that that is really critical. But I think, um, and what I'm trying to do at Catalyst is is, you know, when we're now building that support at senior level, but also that bottom-up yep. is so critical. Yep. And, you know, we've got a sustainability team at the moment of two in an organisation of 600 people. Oh, so, you know, how can we deliver sustainability? And the only way we can do it is by getting everyone involved. Um, we're actually using One Planet Living, which, like Sustainable Development Goals, is a great holistic overview yep. of sustainability, which means that everyone in the organization can look at at least one of those principles and say, yeah, okay, I can contribute to that bit. Whereas otherwise, we're just this sort of weird team up somewhere in one, one part of the organization yep. that does it all, and no one else has to do anything. But um, yeah, really, really, and the other thing that, that I've found is really useful for sustainability from an organization point of view is the ability to to do that networking and break those silos and get cross-collaboration um, through sustainability work groups or committees and so forth. Because it's, it's one of the things in an organization where you can actually bring the whole organization together yep. and just you know, yes. get better communications throughout. But yeah, thanks very much. Right, thank you. There's, some, there's some really good points in there, actually. And, and as you mentioned around you know, a, a two-member team across a, a company of 600, and especially if um, that company's got so many sites across how we've spoken about getting kind of heads of departments on board, but equally important is getting actions from every member of that workforce. Um, we are a bit pressed for time, so just briefly, I'd like to, you all to kind of chime in on that aspect and see um, how, you know, how you get staff that have their own motives, their own, their own reasons in there, and they're, and you know, they're not, they're not unsustainable deliberately. They're, it's just, it's just how their, their job function is. They might just be a bit oblivious. How, how do we engage them a bit better as well? Um, Simon, perhaps I'll you. Um, to some extent, not treating them as one entity is the answer. Remember, these are lots of different cultures in every organization. It doesn't matter. Actually, to be honest, there's only three staff. You've probably got three different cultures. Because each person will come with their own back history, they'll have their own language, they'll have their own, their, their own agendas. And trying to communicate with one poster won't work, whatever size company you're in. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, as you rightly say, that sustainability is a way to break down those barriers between organizations. And one of the greatest things you can do is use that as an engine to drive change. So we've, we've used very successfully the idea that you have little teams who are created from lots of different departments. They run a little program for a period of time and then they move on. And that embeds the whole story across, given how big your organization, it can take a long time, how many, how many you run concurrently. But it means ultimately over, over a period of time, everybody's involved in sustainability. You know what, uh, I, I, uh, I would yep. add into that, and I agree completely with you is, well, probably because I'm a, or I think myself as an executor, I will perhaps anchor this answer in demonstration. 
right? If, and even ask the question, does sustainability has the benefit of the doubt within the organization? Yes or no? Are you credible or do you need to demonstrate that you can? So I think starting, as, as we, I've heard this in a, when I was in a banking before, it, we were sponsoring the Volvo race, so we have two boats, and one boat was the backup of the other boat. And I asked, the, the, it, we were the leadership invited to that uh, meeting and, uh, with the Volvo race people, and I remember I asked them, what was the biggest risk in the project? And they said, getting started. So probably the key ammunition of inspiration and license to build is find a way to demonstrate so you can get the benefit and the license to continue. And um, Mike, I remember one of the, the chats you've done for, for ED in the past was, was around this kind of, the, the kind of staff training that you did on yeah. this aspect as well. So you, I feel that you've That's got a unique perspective provider. Okay, thanks. I think the way to uh, engage the teams and get is, 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 first of all, is to engage. I think so often engaging doesn't happen. Uh, so we're a, we're a food service company. We talk to staff about food, about service, about finance, about health and safety. But it's really important to talk to those people around environmental management, to talk to them and to engage them and actually say, give them the opportunity to make an input, maybe ask for their help, uh, which is empowering in itself, but also uh, give, make, make it easy. Sometimes I think we are, we've all talked about silos loads of times, and we talk about, you know, there's management and there's this structure and that structure, but actually there's no, break down those barriers and let's just have a conversation. So actually one of the things that we do is we have, we do a toolbox training talks on environmental management, whether they be on um, waste and recycling, energy, water, food waste, etc. But they are a 20 minute discussion. And they're 20 minutes because this, the catering teams have been in, on site since half past six this morning. The last thing they want to do is three hours training. But we have a, a 20 minute discussion and it is a peer led discussion. So it's sitting down, a cup of coffee and a flip chart and a discussion. Where does our food waste come from? Where are we using the most energy, etc.? And promoting that discussion, that engagement, rather than just sitting in a, a training room talking at somebody, telling them it's about asking their view, asking their opinion. And it creates an amazing buzz of activity and excitement. But, uh, no, it's not, a, it's not a tip, but look, I, I, that's why we love them. You did this with your customers, with us. So actually part of the license to talk about it was having the, the permission from the company and the organization yeah. to talk to your customers and do sustainability together backwards. So then the barriers of lack of credibility or relevance start getting lower and lower because your customer and you are innovating and doing sustainability together to transcend the barriers yeah. of, of the silos of the company itself. Yeah. So. And, and just to finish on, a nice kind of very thought-provoking question, at least I think it is, um, to finish on, and, and that is, do you see the role of a sustainability professional ever becoming obsolete to the point where there's no department, there's no kind of head of sustainability, it, it's that integrated? Do, do we envision a future with that in? No. I think there'll be the end of the finance department first. Okay. And, and what's your kind of thought process behind that? If the purpose, if the current purpose of business is finance and making profit, when, the, when we realise the purpose of business is sustainability, the role of the sustainability department will be similar to the role of the finance part, department today. Okay, great. And Mike, I saw you nodding your head to my original question there. So. I, 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 don't think there will, I don't think we'll ever reach a time when there isn't a sustainability professional. 
Um, and I liken that to, say, for example, health and safety. There's, there's, always, there's always going to be uh, a legal requirement around sustainability, efficiency, uh, environmental management, compliance. Uh, but also, I, al I also think that while sustainability can be embedded absolutely and understood in terms of what's happening within the business, and that's where we're all aspiring to be, but there'll always be a need for... It's, it's not that person's... Um, prime responsibility. So for example, if in our world, if, if I take a chef, a chef is not there, they're not engaged for sustainability, they're engaged to be a chef, to prepare food, to deliver a service. Sustainability is absolutely something they understand, it's fully part of their role, it's in our job descriptions, they understand it, they get it and they understand about food waste and all of that. But there'll always be a need for somebody to have it as their full-time role to be an innovator and to drive and to create and also to check. So if we take the, the International Standards Organization's method of, of plan, do, check, act. So there's always going to be a requirement for somebody to plan activity. The chef does it, then they review it and then they act and then they re continuously improve. So I think there'll always be a need for a sustainability professional. Well, at least I hope there will anyway. <laughs> Jamie, final thoughts from you as well? Yeah, I think hopefully we can make the role of the sustainability professional a bit easier so we can improve, you know, data and transparency, some of the things that we've spoken about. I think, you know, obviously one of the big challenges in any organization is to be able to prove the targets that you've set uh, because the data is dispersed across so many different parts. And if you, can, if you can create that holy grail of a sustainability dashboard within an organization, um, that's going to make their lives a lot easier. I, I think I like where Simon was going with it in terms of, if you can change the purpose of the organization so it's not driven by market share, you know, the share price, profits, sales, um, and actually focus in on things like social value, then actually you can see the role of the sustainability professional becoming more and more prevalent. And yeah, you might, well, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I quite see finance going all together, <laughs> but um, yeah, I like that idea. It's good. And an interesting idea to finish on as well, because unfortunately we are um, out of time. So a big thank you to my guest today, to Simon, Marcella, Mike and Jamie. Um, and of course to our sponsors, Mighty, for this episode. Um, I'll actually be back tomorrow uh, for the second podcast, which is from the Innovation Theatre this time. So no flowers, unfortunately, for me that day um, to see how businesses can unlock innovation to crack some of these issues we've discussed today and just a reminder for those listening in the audience and those at home the podcast can be listened to via the ed website or downloaded via itunes or spotify but thank you all and goodbye